So um, many years ago, I wrote a book which was called A Heart as Wide as the World. And for a long time in the publication process, it had a different title. I can't remember what, but I didn't like it much. Um, and then one day I was you know, sitting and listening to one of my colleagues give a talk. And she used the phrase, a heart as wide as the world. And I thought, that's it. That's the, the title that I want. So I called the long-suffering publisher, and I said, I want to change the title. It wasn't out yet, of course, but we were getting closer. And they weren't really ecstatic, but uh, they finally gave in. And the issue was that we had gone so long into the process that they'd already designed a cover. And there was very little time to find a new cover. So uh, this is a long time ago. This is like 1996, 97, something like that. So, uh, you know, they were mailing me all these various uh, covers to look at, these works of art. And so there was one they sent me. I can't remember the name of the painting, but uh, it was like this. And, of course, the, the phrase, a heart as wide as the world, implies expansion, right, and big view or something like that. So they were sending me all these things that were, like, expansive. And uh, they sent me something which was like a, a big yellow sky. And down in one corner, there were just, like, a few crumbled huts. It looked like a scene of total desolation. <laughs> and <coughs> I said to somebody, this looks like it should be the cover for the Grapes of Wrath or something like that. <laughs> terrible. What happened to those huts? Like, <laughs> but I showed it to a friend um, and she said to me, uh, this looks like a world that could use some love. And needless to say, that didn't become the cover, but that phrase has stayed with me all these years. This is a world that looks like it could use some love. So here we are, you know, if we think of love or loving kindness, kindness as an ability, as a capacity within ourselves, then the world, whether it's the world of our own being or family or community or, or larger picture of the world, if it could use some love, maybe ability does translate to responsibility. Like if we want to see some love in a conversation, maybe we have to be the ones to introduce it. Or if we want to see it in an encounter, maybe we have to be the ones as far as we can tell. So that's an interesting, I think, reflection to make. And certainly it strikes me as a world that could use some love. Um, the other side of it, of, of course, is the ability, the capacity that we all have to generate, to uh, deepen, to uh, offer that, that quality. So, you know, just to go back, well, we started just by talking about loving kindness, which is the main vehicle we're using as a method. That sense of connection, that acknowledgement of connection, which is different than liking somebody or approving of them or wanting to see them succeed. It's, and it may not be very emotional. You know, it's that bone-deep recognition that the construct of self and other and us and them, which we use as a construct 
in ordinary life is just a construct. And that on a certain level, what we see is we. We see that our lives are intertwined. We see that our lives are interconnected. And that is just the truth of things. And then we have the f flavor of love, you could say, that is compassion. Love that is not so much resting on the belief that all beings want to be happy, that all beings want a sense of belonging, of, of home. Somewhere it's more resting on the belief that we share, all of us, a kind of vulnerability that anybody's life can just change like that. And it's not at all meant to imply that we all share the same measure of pain or suffering, but life is very changeable. It's so fragile. And at any moment, our lives could shift. So sometimes people mistake compassion for a kind of hierarchical state, like I, who am really doing well, and bestowing this kindness on you down there, you know, whose life has fallen apart, which mine never could, because guess what? It really could. You know, so it's much more that kind of acknowledgement. Again, it's a certain feeling tone of like, oh, if we admit that, if we understand that truth about life, it's not to be morose or grim, but it's almost a call. You know, shouldn't we be taking care of one another or responding to one another differently so that no matter what's going on, there doesn't have to be this uh, added isolation to it. So it just came into my mind um, is the time in 1979 when the Dalai Lama came to visit here. Um, we opened in 1976, so we were you know, really new and we were very young anyway. So we heard that the Dalai Lama was coming to Amherst and... Uh, teaching there at Amherst College. Bob Thurman at that time was a professor there before he went to Columbia. And so being young and naive, we dashed off a letter to the private office. And we said, hey, we're a Buddhist center too. Maybe you'd like to come here. We're not that far. Uh, it's about 40 minutes away. And uh, amazingly, we got a letter back saying, yeah, he'll come. So we had to get ready. And you know, security now is way more intense than it was in those days, but still in those days, it was pretty intense. And, um, you know, for us. And so we had to blockade Pleasant Street. We had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns. And um, the day came that he was going to arrive. And not too long before he was coming, I'd been in a car accident and I had a broken bone in my foot. And so I was using crutches, which I was really klutzy with. So... Uh, the day finally came, and it was this completely zooey scene with the state troopers and, you know, video cameras, and there were about a hundred of us standing outside, waiting for him. And I was way in the back, and I kept feeling really bad about that. And I kept thinking, you know, I helped start this place. Here I am, stuck in the back. I should be in the front. Why am I in the back? And then I thought, no, it'd be really bad to be in the front because I'll probably trip and I'll fall on my face right in front of him. And, That'd be even worse. I'd better stay in the back. Oh, but I'm in the back. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then this car pulled up, and he got out, and he did something I've seen him do many times since, but it was the first time I'd seen it. 
he almost seems to have a kind of radar for who in a crowd is suffering the most, and he just goes there, and that was me. So he just like he got out of his car, he cut through a hundred people, came up to me, took my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, "What happened?" You know, and that was a moment that helped redefine compassion for me because I realized he could not have made the accident not have happened. He could not have made me any more skilled in my use of the crutches, but that horrible, corrosive feeling of being so unseen and so isolated and so uncared for, it was gone, right? And so that really, uh, to this day, has been my model of the felt sense of compassion. This is what Oren was talking about. Sometimes you can make a difference, particularly, you know, um, realistically in some circumstance, and sometimes you can't, but you're there, right? So... We look at the evolution and the development of compassion, and especially the differentiation between, say, compassion and that state of overwhelm, because they're close. And inevitably, we will fall into each, but having that sense of uh, clarity about really the, the feeling, the nature, the characteristics of compassion, it just helps us come back and steer a course back. Oh, we have sympathetic joy, which is um, joy in the happiness of others. I promise you that's what it means. And uh, many teachers would say that of these qualities that are taught together as this kind of bundle, for many people, sympathetic joy is the most difficult. You know, if compassion is based on seeing pain as pain, like if we, for example, see our own anger, our own fear, our own greed, not as bad and wrong and terrible, but as painful, it is likely we can respond with compassion. And so too, if we see the actions of others as being born of pain, we can respond with compassion. But sympathetic joy can be tough uh, because there are an awful lot of assumptions that need to be challenged to come to that place of genuine happiness for others. Now, some people, of course, have the trait naturally, and I just think they're amazing, you know? Like, something good happens for you, and they're so happy for you. And it feels so delightful, and like, really, you've been given a gift. And other people, it's like they may smile, but you really get the feeling. <laughs> they would just be fine if it all fell apart for you, and it feels horrible. It feels so terrible. Like, my joy has brought you pain. <laughs> you know, so the assumptions are, are also what, what Oren spoke about. Happiness is a limited commodity in this world, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for me. Or you have everything, and you will forever. And I, I have nothing, and I will forever. So, of course, there's several problems with that one because nothing is forever. And it's really not likely that I have absolutely nothing. And this is the place where looking at what we have and um, the gratitude we can have helps bring us to the place where we can have sympathetic joy. And it's also unlikely that someone else has everything and they will forever. Life's just not like that. And then there's this very funny assumption which is a little hard to put into words, it's, it's sort of like 
the praise, the prize, the accolade was coming right toward me. And you stole it. And if, it had, if you had not done that, if you had not intervened to get it for yourself, I definitely would have gotten it. But is that really true? You know, the New York Times is actually not driving around looking for someone to put on the bestseller list. And it wasn't the case that they had my address till you kidnapped them and made them put your book on. And if your book had not gotten on, my book would have gotten on. I mean, it feels like that, but it's probably not true, actually. And so the um, cultivation, the development of sympathetic joy also involves the uh, unearthing of these kinds of assumptions and being able to dismantle them to see what actually is. And then just the sheer joy of not being burdened by endless competition, you know, where it's not, it's not even existing. Um, it's such a relief. Okay, the secret ingredient in, in these three, as in mindfulness, is the fourth quality, which is known as equanimity. So equanimity in this context, the context of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, is <coughs> the balance born of wisdom. So it means that as we are cultivating compassion, it's done in a context of deepening wisdom. As we do compassionate action, it can be done in a context of deepening wisdom. Equanimity itself is a quite peculiar word, I know, in any form. When I was first practicing, my first teacher, as I said, was um, S.N. Goenka in India in this 10-day course in 1971. And he used to go around all the time saying, be equanimous, be equanimous, be equanimous. And we used to whisper to one another, is that a word? I never heard that word. What does that word mean? But even in the form of equanimity, it's quite difficult to understand. For many people, it implies coldness or uh, indifference, withdrawing, um, even a, that kind of quiet sullenness, which looks like detachment, you know, but is really kind of anger instead, a hostility. Uh, we can confuse equanimity with many things, but it really is about balance. Um, even the word balance can be unattractive. I've often thought it is an unattractive word. Uh, it sounds so dull to me, like mediocrity or something, you know, <laughs> like nothing special. But really, balance um, is like peace. And it's powerful. It's not cut off or indifferent because it's, it's the voice of wisdom. It's the perspective we get as we see more clearly like nothing is forever. And anything that gets fed through assuming something is going to last forever can get challenged, right? Like that jealousy, that rage, that envy. Everything that gets uh, strengthened by assuming really we are in control, somehow. 
and the corollary, everything is our fault, absolutely everything, can get challenged as we see, look at that. I'm not in control, in fact. I can and should do as a human being everything I can, say, to alleviate the situation or to make a difference, and it's not up to me in the end. Things are as they are. And this takes, I think, some real practice because the words themselves can imply a kind of coldness that it's not really meant to. It's balance, it's peace. It's seeing things as they are. And in many ways, it's the equanimity factor that allows, say, compassion not to stay in overwhelm, even if we fall into it or we dip into it, which I think we tend to anyway, um, we can recognize it for what it is and come back. What is that balance between compassion for someone else and ourselves? Or the wisdom that can fuel compassion when we understand, you know, we may not get an instant result. What we see in front of us is not necessarily the end of the story. It's what we see in front of us. And so many things we do to try to make a difference are really more like planting seeds. And it's not going to be instantaneous necessarily that we see the fruit of that. And there's a lot of mystery involved too. Didn't you ever have that experience where you did something or you gave somebody something and you thought nothing had come of it? And then sometimes even years later, Somebody comes back, that person comes back and says, oh, you know, it didn't strike me at the time that that book was for me, for example, but all these years later I picked it up and I see, oh, it's really important. Oh, you said this to me way back when and I know you meant to encourage me and it didn't really, but then I was in this other circumstance and you came back to me. And you were there for me, and, and I realized, oh, I can go on in a different way. I mean, so many times we come face to face with the fact that we are almost just like planting seeds and allowing nature to take its course. And that's seeing what we don't know is part of equanimity. It's part of what gives us balance. The flavor of equanimity is space, it's spaciousness, it's allowing, it's recognizing, it's clear because it's wisdom. Um, it's not like fuzzy or trying to take a nap, you know, or numbing out. Um, and it's uh, very much aligned with bringing the deepest life experience we have had to the forefront as we just live each day. It's through equanimity that wisdom will express itself. So it's very easy for qualities, say, like loving kindness, um, without equanimity, without balance, without perspective, <coughs> to fall into the same kind of models of grasping and clinging and an attachment that uh, we can have with anything anyway. To see that, uh, as one friend of mine put it, 
meta can become meta with an edge. Uh, as he said, you know, instead of like, may you be happy, it's like, may you be happy by, let's see, Thursday. Um, the course ends Wednesday, but I can give you till Thursday to get happy because right now you're on the top of my list, but, you know, I've got a lot of people to make happy, and so hurry up. And, and speaking of lists, here's your list of everything you need to do to change, to be happy, according to me. You know, and attachment is a, a difficult word for us these days, especially with Western psychology and attachment theory. And, you know, so attachment in this context doesn't mean nurturing, bonding, all, all of that. It, it basically means control. And sometimes for myself, uh, in trying to understand it in different situations, I actually will substitute the word control for the word attachment and say, okay, what does that look like? We want to control someone's happiness. Ain't going to happen. It doesn't mean we don't go there. You know, we're not present. We're not even trying to intervene. Maybe we are, but it can be with wisdom instead of that really misguided notion that somehow we are in control. Um, I... Uh, in the, in the Buddhist text, sometimes equanimity is described as a parent whose child is now an adult, where there's love, there's compassion, there's sympathetic joy, and there's the realization, you know what? I can't make their decisions for them. I can't choose their livelihood. I can't choose their partner. I can't choose their lifestyle. It doesn't mean you've abandoned them, you've forsaken them, you don't care, you cut them off. Uh, it's tremendous love and connection and the realization that it's not up to me. So once I was doing a uh, uh, some kind of webcast thing for a friend's yoga teacher training program in California, and I said that I used that example, and uh, I could only, you know I only had a little screen and the camera was only covering a certain amount of the room, and it was all this hooting and howling when I said that, uh, and then my friend sort of move the computer so I could see like the range of who was in the room and there were all these parents of young children and they all were saying it's not just adult children <laughs> you know you can't decide like well you're going to be artistic and you're going to be a little athletic and you're you know right <laughs> things are as they are um, so it's you know there's a lot of exploration that I think is really enriching equanimity also doesn't mean that everything flattens out sometimes people assume that, that, you know, pleasure and pain will disappear and it'll all be kind of gray, but that could be okay. It's sort of restful, it seems. Um, you know, but it's not like that. Uh, we just have this range of experience all the time from that which is pleasant and that which is painful. The question is not uh, annihilating that or somehow making that all blended or bland or something like that. But the question is, how do we approach that pleasure and how do we approach the pain? You know, when something feels delightful and wonderful and great, it isn't always easy to experience it fully for what it is and to enjoy it and be there without adding something, you know, grasping. I have to keep this forever. How do I keep it forever without deflection, 
I don't deserve this. Um, there's too much suffering in the world. Anyway, I can't let myself enjoy this. Um, so many possibilities for that kind of distorted reaction or, or relationship. Or we can have a kind of balanced presence with it to see what's revealed, to allow it to be what it is, to allow it to change however it might change. And certainly we can have, as you know, I said earlier, a very distorted relationship to pain. But equanimity doesn't mean that there's no pain, you know, that everything feels the same, or, or it doesn't mean that we somehow don't recognize pain as pain. This is one of my big things, as many of you know, you know, from being with me in other places. And it's, I think these days it's what I want in my epitaph. Uh, some things just hurt. And if anybody ever made a line of T-shirts or mugs for me, <laughs> these days that's what I want to say. Some things just hurt. Some things are really painful. And it's not because you have a bad attitude or you're resisting, or you need to change your thinking. Some things just hurt. And there's also such a thing as extra suffering, which more comes from those add-ons. It comes from uh, the sense of isolation, the sense of permanence, uh, the inability at that moment to kind of go deeper into something and see the layers um, that are also there. It comes sometimes... Um, the add-on is, is this kind of pressure, you know, that uh, we must be grateful for this painful thing. And uh, my most recent book is, you know, I'm sure I mentioned before, it's called Real Love. And <coughs> I was very late with it. Um, it was about two years late. <laughs> but I actually turned it in one day early. <laughs> from my very last deadline. Uh, so it was two years late and one day early. And <coughs> I was in England getting ready to sit a retreat myself with this Tibetan teacher when I turned it in. So um, <coughs> I turned it in and I got an away message from my publisher. It was on vacation. So I thought, all right, you know, like you could have given me another three weeks, but. So I waited for a really long time to hear from him. And finally he wrote, really it was weeks later, he wrote and he said, I really loved your book. My favorite passage in the book, my favorite part of the whole book was when you quoted Roshi Joan Halifax, who said something like, don't, force your, don't try to force yourself to think of the traumas of your past, the traumas of your past as gifts. Just think of them as givens. Don't try to force yourself to think of the traumas of your past as gifts. Just think of them as givens that happened. You know, now what? Now what am I going to build? Now what am I going to construct? So first I thought, oh, that's funny. His favorite part of my book I didn't even write. <laughs> you know, someone else wrote. And then I thought, actually, it's my favorite part of the book too. <laughs> I really love the quote. You know, but, and we were very good friends, Joan and I, so uh, it was quite amusing. But, you know, there's so many ways in which um, equanimity is like, it happened. This is the truth. 
of my experience or this is the truth of the moment, this moment. And that frees us to then say, now what? Now, how am I going to approach this? What am I going to do? What am I adding on to this that might be better released? It's peace. And it's peace based on wisdom. This happened. This is true, or this is what's happening right now. Or my friend's really in trouble. That's true. And can I be there like the Dalai Lama was for me in that kind of presence, not needing to fix it, not needing to be the one, you know, to make it all better in a more sustained way than we tend to be when we have this fixed notion. It's got to change. It's got to change right now. I have to be the one. Hurry up. Get better. So it's said that equanimity is the force that allows something like loving kindness to not just fall into its near enemy of attachment or control. It's what allows compassion to not just fall into that process of uh, overwhelm or despair, some, some people have suggested as a translation. Because those can be very close, right? And yet, with some more balance, we can move out of that, that kind of despair into a state that actually still has some energy. One of the definitions or one of the characteristics of compassion is usually energy because you're moving toward some situation of pain to see if you can be of help. That's distinguished from moving into to burn up yourself, but you're moving toward. So the greatest source of equanimity is wisdom, which means paying attention. And particularly as the Buddha um, talked about it, he talked about what he called the eight vicissitudes of life, of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. There's pleasure and pain in everyone's life, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And there's no one who has only pleasure and no pain. There's no one who has only praise and no blame. But remember, this doesn't mean indifference. It doesn't mean you don't care. It means you recognize this is the nature of things. And so the efforts you make don't have to be born of that resentment or protestation, you know, like, I should get only praise, because after all. And I usually like talking the most about praise and blame, because um, I find it so interesting that it's the very same action that can elicit praise from some people and blame from others. So that leaves us needing to look somewhere else besides the immediate reaction of others for a sense of our own integrity, for the rightfulness or lack of skill of our action. So the, the model that's usually used um, <coughs> uh, in terms of describing action has to do with, first of all, seeing the intention behind an action. You know, if I were to reach down and pick up this clock and hand it to one of you, all anybody sees is my hand moving down and picking up an object 
and moving it forward. But a critical question, certainly within Eastern psychology or Buddhist psychology, is why? Like, what was cooking inside that had my hand moved down, that sparked that action? My hand moving down, picking up the object and moving it forward. Now, maybe I'm giving it to you because I like you and I want you to have it. Or maybe I'm giving it to you because I don't like you and I think that's going to tick and it's going to drive you crazy. It's like, here, have a clock. It's the same smile, you know. It's the same gesture. It looks completely identical on the surface. And it's coming from a totally different place. Maybe I'm giving it to you because I see you have that water bottle or that bench. And I think, well, hey, if I give you this, maybe you'll give me the bench. Or maybe there are TV cameras going. And I think, oh, I want everyone to think I'm really generous. I'm going to give away the clock. You know, that's really an important arena for investigation. It's like, they say only we can know our intention. And it's through mindfulness that we can, we can make that kind of discernment to see where we're coming from. It's also said you know, that loving kindness, the, the particular arena of the psyche that loving kindness meditation or cultivation is specifically geared toward is the arena of intention. And then the second you know, as we've talked about, is the second aspect is the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of the execution. Maybe I have to stop and think, you know, there's only one clock, there are a lot of people in this room. Um, maybe this is best done privately. It's like mindfulness of context, mindfulness of the bigger picture of where we are. Um, we learn skills of communication. We learn, oh, you know what, it usually is much better to say it this way rather than in an accusing fashion or whatever, right? And so uh, there's a lot of learning there. It's a very rich, creative arena of uh, discernment. I, I sometimes call it our best guess because, of course, we make mistakes and, and so on. Um, but we can keep learning, and it is based on a bigger mindfulness because there are no formulas particularly to... Um, you know, exact action. Should you give somebody money or not? I don't know. What's the motive? What's your intention? What seems most skillful um, in that particular context, in that particular relationship? And that's what we need to look at because if we only look at the immediate reaction, oh, they thanked me loudly, oh, they didn't thank me at all, uh, we're sunk. You know, you can't really successfully say to somebody, something's going to happen at 8 o'clock at night. I want you to come into the room not having checked your email, not having checked your cell phone, not having spoken to anybody, and not having had a single thought in your head. Like, up until that last one, I bet you thought, oh, I could do that, because that's what I'm doing here. <laughs> right? Because I don't want you coming into the room in some kind of mood. You know, nobody comes into that room as a blank slate. Maybe I, you know, have this beautiful, genuine motive to give you the clock, and I think it through really carefully, I'm going to do it privately, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm also not going to steal the clock, because it's not my clock, I'm going to pay IMS for the clock, and do the whole thing, and then, you know, you didn't turn in your cell phone when you, you know, had the chance, and you just checked your messages, and you just won like $40 million in the lottery. And it's like, 
you could not care less about this clock. You know, you can move to Switzerland and open a clock factory. I don't know what you can do, but, you know, it's like, you know, I hand you the clock and you, you just kind of nod coldly and you walk away and like, I'm heartbroken, right? It is very rare in that situation to think maybe they have something going on, you know? Most likely we think, I am really awful. I am the stupidest person. I always give the wrong gift. Why did I give him a clock, you know? I always make these mistakes. It's so rare to look back at our motivation, and we do look at the skillfulness of our actions, you know, because we do make mistakes, and we do have things to learn, but that does not mean that 100% of the time someone is going to start weeping and say, a clock, thank you so much. It's just not like that. And, you know, because it's the same action that elicits the praise and the blame, I just find it fascinating. <coughs> I told uh, one of my groups that, um, you know, as you see some people bowing to the Buddha, it's very strongly Asian custom. You know, like a Buddha image in a country like Burma, for example, is not considered a work of art. It's considered like a sacred object. And it's not certainly considered the proper image for like an ashtray or something like that, as we do here. Um, and it's a sacred object in that the Buddha was always talked about as having been a human being. So when we look at a Buddha statue, it's, it's almost like not other. We're looking at the potential we also have as a human being for boundless compassion, for uh, tremendous wisdom. So we're looking at the Buddha image and we're seeing that potential in ourselves and that's really what is being bowed to so it's very strongly Asian custom to treat uh, an image in a certain way so uh, here it's you know confusing and it's conflicted because people have different relationships to things like statues and um, there's the combination of uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism the Buddha taught a way of life you don't have to relate to the Buddha, you know, at all, let alone as a statue. And, and yet, you know, there's something about, uh, as I said the first night, I did not make this up. Think of that, how lucky we are. You know, and it's because of this lineage that we are this lucky. And, um, you know, so some people choose to just pay respects in that way, and other people, you know, it's not so comfortable or so familiar. So... I have one colleague um, at the center who uh, had not really practiced in Asia. He did, he did his practice in the West with Western teachers primarily. Um, and then he went to Thailand for one season, and it was tremendously impactful for him. So when he came back from Thailand, uh, he wanted to bow to the Buddha, you know, statue, like behind me. That was what he had grown accustomed to, and it was meaningful for him. So um, as I said to the group, I like telling the story here because you can get a sense of timing and geography. So he sat up here, came up, bowed to the Buddha, sat down, led the sitting, rang the bell, and by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes waiting for him. So you can tell how short a trip that is. So uh, he pulled off some notes, and they said, 
I was so glad to see you bowing to the Buddha. You know, it was so, there's a part of me that's very devotional. I was so happy to see that I could find a place here. And he pulled off other notes and they said, I was appalled to see you bowing to the Buddha. That has no place in a place like this, you know. And it's like, there you are, 30 seconds, right? There's praise and blame. So certainly we don't just blithely go through life never paying attention to what we do and its consequences. It's not that at all. But um, if we are counting on only praise to decide if we are worthy of love, if we've done okay, it's never going to be in our control. It will never be uniform. It will never be the same. We just go up and down and... Um, we need to look, but we need to look in the right place. And so the suggestion is that we actually look at our motivation and that we look at the level of skill with which we acted. Did we really kind of think things through? Did we do the best we could in communicating or whatever it is? And then for the rest, there's some equanimity. It doesn't mean you don't feel anything. But what we feel, we hold in context. We hold it in some balance. So... The story I usually tell about that is when um, my first book came out, which was Loving Kindness. If anybody, occasionally somebody comes through with an original hardcover version of it. So if you look at the original hardcover version of it and you read the blurbs on the back, you see that it took me a really long time to write that book. Somebody, I think it was either Jack Cornfield or Stephen Levine said, we've waited a long time for this book. <laughs> and the other one said in this long-awaited first book, <laughs> and Joan Halifax, actually, the famous Joan Halifax, said originally, she said something like, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us. And <laughs> I, made, I made that publisher take off the finally. I said, that's too much. Um, so it took me a really long time to write that book. And... and I finally did it, and it felt like such an amazing accomplishment. And soon after I wrote the book, soon after the book came out, uh, I went to California, and I was having lunch with somebody, and she said, oh, you know, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way, it's just like being with you. It's like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was so happy. I thought, wow, there's probably not a nicer thing you can say to somebody. Than that, I was so excited that that night I was at dinner with a whole other group of people and I brought up the comment. And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading the book. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay. You can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. Or you could take a moment and think it's the same book written from whatever was motivating me at the time with whatever level of skill I could bring forth, one person reacted one way, another person reacted another way, and I would never want to pretend I didn't notice the difference. I mean, of course we care. But the question becomes, how much do we care? Are we completely defining ourselves and our actions in a realm, in an arena we could never really control ourselves? Because how can you insist that people see clearly what a splendid book it is, right? <laughs> if you figure it out, let me know, you know? It just, life is just not like that. 
So we care because we're human beings, but do you really want to turn over your whole sense of who you are to kind of like the winds of change? Because somebody had a bad morning, right? You now feel like I never read another book? Really? We can be like that as we get attached, as we push away, you know? So equanimity in some ways, it's not adding kind of the familiar, holding on and pushing away. It's allowing, it's almost like allowing the experience to breathe so we can be with it and we can see what we're going to make of it in some way, right? To be able to hang in there with what's going on with some space, some ease of heart because we're not totally defined by the present moment's experience. So all of these, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, it's like we're always kind of working with each of them in some way. We say equanimity is always there. It's got to be there. Otherwise, loving kindness is not loving kindness. Compassion is not compassion. <coughs> they become more that distorted form of themselves. And usually it's unspoken until we start speaking of it. Uh, when I studied in Burma, it was taught in this order, metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and that's the kind of classical way in this tradition. In some Tibetan traditions, they actually start with equanimity because that's like the ground of understanding within which we're going to be cultivating the others. And, you know, we talk about balancing compassion and sympathetic joy. We need to open to the suffering because it's there. And if we are continually determined to avoid it, our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. At the same time, we also want to open to the joy because the purpose of the practice is not to suffer. One of the interesting things for me uh, in coming upon Buddhist teaching was that suffering itself is not redemptive. You know, it's not because we suffer that we um, experience grace or we experience um, love. It all depends on how we relate to the suffering because certainly there are enough people who become bitter and isolated and have an increasingly hard time. Whatever degree of, of pain or suffering they've, they've confronted, and at the same time, there are others who sometimes go through a lot and somehow it's approached in some way or worked with in some way or experienced in some way so that they do come out with kind of a, a wealth of compassion for themselves and, and ultimately for others. So there's tremendous potential there as well. We need the equanimity in order to hang in there and you know, not blame ourselves for what we're feeling, but really just, just to be with it as it is. And they're all um, subject to cultivation. You know, they're all about what we are capable of as human beings with this mind and this heart and being able to grow these qualities. I also think of um, this friend of mine, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a researcher in uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, and 
Uh, her most recent book was called Love 2.0, which is a title I wanted but didn't get. <laughs> and I'm really happy for her. <laughs> <laughs> what comes after 2.0? Are we there yet? I don't know. Can you do that, 3.0? Um, but her first book was called Positivity, so she researches positive states. Um, Many people in that field, uh, as some of you may be, they call it positive emotions. I don't consider them all emotions, so I call them positive states. Gratitude, loving kindness, uh, generosity, um, equanimity, or peace, are considered positive states. So, uh, and she especially researches loving kindness, using loving kindness meditation as the intervention. That's how I know her. So um, in positivity, she has... Uh, listed what's known as the Fredrickson theory of uh, broaden and build around positive states. And the first part is around broaden, that when we strengthen these states, we cultivate these states like gratitude, like generosity, um, like equanimity, compassion, uh, balance, then our whole perspective broadens. Our world gets bigger we have a sense of expansion, right? It's like a heart as wide as the world. We feel openness. We can breathe. We feel free. And that makes a lot of sense to me because I know what it's like to feel trapped in the opposite state. So I'm not talking about just feeling anger or fear or something like that, but I mean those times that I feel locked in or we feel locked in. They all give us tunnel vision. The world shrinks. It gets very small. We can't imagine options. We can't picture any kind of creative resolution, right? We feel so stuck. If you bring up, for example, the last time you were really angry at yourself, I don't know how long ago it might have been, but just bring it up right now and feel it. What's it like? It's not a time when, you know, we're recollecting that stupid thing we said or we did and we then think, you know what? I did five great things the same morning. Those five great things, they're gone. Right? We're just locked into that sense of, I am incompetent, I can't do anything. Or the last time you were afraid. It's not a time where our minds say, you know what? If it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. It's not going to work out. Or you were consumed with greed for something. It had to be exactly that thing. And nothing else would ever make you happy. So you forgot about it, you know. But in the grips of it, it's very strong. And so because we experience that tightness and the, and the kind of narrowness, narrowness, the fixation of those qualities, we can appreciate, oh, you know, the opposite qualities bring the opposite. It's that sense of expansion and openness and then there's the second part of that um, theory, broaden and build, which is around building a sense of inner resource. We cultivate these qualities not to um, you know, present a certain picture to the world or pretend anything or even to be pleased with ourselves you know, and just kind of go along content, but because um, it broadens things for us and it builds a sense of inner resource. Because just like with compassion and burnout, 
eventually generosity, whether it's material generosity or generosity of the spirit as in love and compassion, it's got to come from somewhere. And if we feel just incredibly impoverished and depleted and overcome and beset, it's going to be awfully hard to keep giving. We often use material generosity as a model just because it's more concrete. <coughs> you know, it's very interesting because studies show that it's not really the kind of external measure of how much one has that makes it easy, easier to be generous because you can have a whole lot but not at all have the internal feeling you even have enough. And it's very hard. And I know, certainly, maybe we all know people who don't have that much by any external measure, but they're very generous. It's just this kind of natural flow of sharing. There's something else going on within. And so, too, with generosity of the spirit. I and mean, when you're tired and you feel overcome and, you know, and then some friend calls you and starts telling you their very sad story and you think, oh, go away. You know, I just don't have it. You know, it's not nothing to build that sense of inner resource and keep renewing it and replenishing it because that's realistic. You know, generosity, and we can give for a lot of different reasons. We could give out of obligation. We could give, um, you know, in many ways. But it said the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance or at least inner sufficiency. And so it's not selfish, it's not self-centered, it's not um, self-preoccupied to consider our own happiness and well-being. Because happiness, in this sense, does not mean just endlessly seeking pleasure. It means that sense of inner resource. Feeling as though there is something of sustenance inside that we can draw upon as we care. You know, as we offer our time, our energy, our presence. Uh, whatever it might be. And this is really why we practice. So we practice um, loving kindness as the main vehicle. Uh, we're always practicing equanimity. And we move between compassion and sympathetic joy as we shift the recipient of, of the loving kindness. And it's all toward the end of being able to broaden immensely our, our view of life and ourselves and to, to build this kind of resource. Okay, so let's sit together for a few minutes.
thank you. And uh, we'll have a walking period now and come back for the last thing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.